next, we've got Julian Loves. Can you see my screen? Yep. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm going to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry. So, did, did you want to do an introduction or should I just begin? Oh, yeah. We've, we've had people just begin pretty much. I, okay, I've been, so, yeah, I wasn't I'm, I'm, a, I'm sorry. I'm a volunteer. I don't know too well who okay. is who. Yeah, I'm just, I'm tasked with just like, you know, trying to make this go smoothly. Sorry. Yeah, sure, sure, before I go off. But but anyway, thank you. So yep. um, I'm going to be presenting a very recent work of ours called a holistic security analysis of Monero transactions. And this is joint work with uh, my colleague, Kas Kremas, and my student, Benedict Wagner. Okay, so um, obviously I'm going to be talking about Monero. And more specifically, I'm going to be talking about its... Um, transaction scheme, which is called Ring CT. And, um, you know, just to give a broad picture of what I'm going to be talking about, Monero, as you probably know, because this is Monerotopia, is a privacy focused currency. It has a market capitalization of about $2.8 billion. Um, and transactions are uh, secured by a very complex transaction system called Ring CT, which is the subject of our work. Now, Ring CT is made up of a bunch of components, um, which I've listed here. Uh, most notably, we have linkable ring signatures, commitments, range proofs, and stealth addresses. And I'm going to be going over some of these components today, and I'm going to be explaining how they work and how they form together to form Ring CT, um, you know, at a very, very abstract level. Okay, so the central question that we're trying to answer here is, is Ring CT secure? And uh, now, if you're not from the area of provable security, then you might ask, why? And the answer is, well, I mean, it's a huge cryptocurrency, and it's a very, very complex system. And as far as we're concerned, there has been no security proof of the entire system that covers all aspects as a whole. There have been proofs of partial, um, you know, components of the system, but there has been no analysis of the whole transaction system as a whole. And for that reason, it's actually not clear whether it has the provable security guarantees that it claims. Um, so spoiler, it does. Uh, we found no bug in the, in, the, in the transaction protocol and we managed to prove it secure. So that's good, I hope. Uh, another thing that I want to add here is that we only consider the security of transactions, but not their privacy. So, okay, with those things out of the way, let's jump right in. Now, the, you know, basically the main result of our work is that we give an abstraction and a security model for Ring CT, and that we manage to prove the security of Ring CT within this abstraction and security model um, according to the two following security goals. The first one is that the adversary cannot steal any coins in Monero. And the second one is that the adversary should not be able to create any coins. And if we can prove those two things, then intuitively, Monero should be a secure cryptocurrency. Okay, so our security analysis proceeds in two steps, basically. So the first thing that we do, and I'm not going to be talking about this today, is that we modularize this very, very complex transaction system into multiple different components. 
And then we actually give a very detailed analysis of each of these components. Okay, and once we have all of these uh, security definitions for these components, we put them all together and then we do a system level analysis of the security of Ring CT. And it follows, of course, from the security of all of these different cryptographic components. And so what I mean by components here are, you know, a lot of these different things that I had on my, on my uh, previous slide, like uh, a special type of linkable ring signature, which I'll be getting back to later, uh, key derivation components, um, commitments, and so on. But I'll be talking about that in a second. Okay, so this talk will cover the component, uh, the, the system level analysis, but not the component level analysis. Okay, so now let's have a look first at how Ring CT actually works. So to begin, let's have a look at how transactions work in popular cryptocurrencies. So first we have plain transactions, such as you can find in Bitcoin. And in Bitcoin, uh, a transaction basically just transfers some amount of cryptocurrency from the sender's public key, say Alice, to the recipient's public key, say Bob here. Okay, and then on the complete other side of the spectrum, we have um, encrypted transactions such as in Zcash, where you have a guarantee, actually provable guarantee, that you have complete anonymity within a certain set, uh, anonymity set of users where nobody can gain any information about any of the transactions that are being transferred. So in, uh, in Zcash, this would be the, the shielded pool, right? And of course, this gives very, very strong privacy guarantees. But as you can see in, in, the, in the example of Zcash, these transactions are typically a lot slower and they're more expensive. And that's why they're not being used that much, even though they exist. And now Monero, I see it basically as falling in between these two extremes. So Monero gives very strong privacy guarantees using a, uh, an approach called mixing. So the idea is to take a bunch of transactions, mix them all together and shuffle them around so that it's not clear who's paying how much to, you know, whom, and that, that, that anonymizes the, the, uh, the senders and the recipients in this very complex system. And it makes it much harder to trace certain payments going from A to B. Now, okay, let's have a closer look at the anatomy of uh, plain transactions and then how that would translate into a more narrow transaction. So going back to this very, very simple and rudimentary example of, uh, of Bitcoin, here a transaction would look as follows. So if say Alice wants to transfer two Bitcoins to Bob, then what she would do is she creates a transaction where she identifies herself as the sender, she identifies the amount, and she also identifies as the receiver Bob, and then she signs uh, this transaction with her secret key, which can be verified upon anybody holding her public key. Okay, and this will transfer two bitcoins to Bob, and then Bob can do the same thing to spend those transactions in turn, or those bitcoins in turn, okay? And uh, the, the idea is that uh, each transaction that is being processed here actually uh, contains as an input the output or the, the unspent output of a previous transaction, okay? So whenever you will pay 
transaction to somebody, then whatever is left over, what doesn't go to that recipient will become a new unspent output that can be later spent in the next transaction. And we refer to this as the unspent transaction or UTXO model. So now let's get a little bit closer to what Monero is doing. So here we will actually consider multi-input transactions. So before we only had a single input from Alice, but now let's say that Alice has two unspent outputs, each corresponding to one Monero or one Bitcoin, and she wants to spend both of those um, unspent outputs. So now a multi-input transaction would allow Alice to spend both of these unspent outputs at the same time. Okay. Uh, so in my previous example here, I used one Bitcoin for both of these, or one Monero for both of these unspent uh, outputs. But now let's see what happens if Alice would have, uh, say, two unspent Monero in the first um, in the first unspent output and three in the second one. What would happen then is that there is one coin remaining that is not transferred over to Bob because Bob in this transaction only gets four Moneros. And uh, whatever remains after that actually gets transferred into a new unspent output of Alice. So this is my running example here. Uh, again, here Alice will use the same amount of currency in both of her inputs. And um, in as we'll see, it's, it's important to add references to each of these inputs so that they can be distinguished when the transaction is built. Okay, so now let's get to the main ideas of Ring CT. So the first thing that we want to do in Ring CT is we want to hide the senders. We don't want to reveal who is sending to whom. So for this, at a very, very conceptual level, we will be using um, cryptographic primitive called ring signatures, which I'm going to explain on the next couple of slides. The second goal that we want to have is that we want to hide the amounts of how much money is being transferred between senders and recipients. For this, we will use cryptographic commitments. And the third thing that we want to do is we want to hide who is receiving what amount from whom. And for this, we will be using uh, stealth addresses. Okay, so let's actually look at this uh, third component first, the stealth addresses, because I believe that this is really what uh, sets Monero apart from a lot of other cryptocurrencies. So here is how that works. Basically, Bob, who is going to be the recipient of this stealth, uh, this stealth transaction, will have two long-term secret keys, which are just ZP elements, KV for the view key and KS for the spending key. And those correspond to um, two uh, points on the elliptic curve, and those are his public view key and his public spending key. Um, okay, so those are Bob's long-term keys. Now, um, excuse me. If Alice would like to spend both of these unspent uh, outputs to Bob in this transaction, then what she will do is the following. He will sample uh, a random R from ZP, and P here is the order of the elliptic curve that we're using. Um, and then she will generate this randomness as raising um, the base point of this curve to this power of R. Then she will generate an output key by taking Bob's view key and raising Bob's view key to this R, which he just generated. 
then she will hash the output key, raise the base point to this hash and multiply it with Bob's spending key. And this is going to be the public key that her uh, outputs are being transferred to. So now Bob can actually check whether this output is his by computing the uh, output key on his side um, because these two operations commute in the exponent. That's basically, you can think of it as a mini Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And then it can check whether this transaction is actually meant for him. And then if it is indeed meant for him, then he can later spend it by computing the spending key in this fashion right here. Okay, so now actually something else happens. So what Alice now adds to this transaction is a commitment to the amount in the transaction. So to do this, she will commit to the amount that's in this transaction. And uh, she'll do this by computing a commitment, say a Pedersen commitment, onto with some corresponding commitment randomness that I've denoted here as CR. Okay, so intuitively, this uh, commitment, we will use it, as I said, to hide the amounts of what is being transferred here, but we'll get to that only on the next slide. First, let's have a look at how we can hide the inputs uh, using ring signatures. Okay, so in a Monero transaction, what is going to happen is that um, each user is going to supply not only their inputs, but also some decoy inputs. And the intuitive reason behind this is that what we want to do is increase the anonymity set. Remember? We want to have, we want to make it very difficult for somebody, an eavesdropper who is observing these transactions to see how much money is being sent around between senders and recipients. And for this reason, we're going to increase the anonymity set by adding some decoy inputs to every transaction. And these are the light gray uh, transactions here in, in this drawing. Okay, so again, we're going to uh, reference all of them so that they can be distinguished. And now, Two problems remain, basically. So the first thing that we have to prevent is double spending. And the second thing that we have to prevent is that the sum of all, you know, the amounts that are going into this transaction are being transferred over to the recipients of this transaction have to be preserved through this intermediate layer where we are actually committing to the uh, inputs and then they're going to be spent to the recipients. So to prevent double spending, as I already said, we're going to use linkable ring signatures. So what is a linkable ring signature? First, let's have a look at what is a ring signature, actually. A ring signature, very abstractly spoken, is a um, regular signature, basically, cryptographic signature, but it doesn't behave syntactically like a regular signature. Rather, we have a group of people, that's called, and they're called the ring, and they want to jointly generate a signature on behalf of the group. So any member from this ring can actually generate the signature, and then it will act as a signature on behalf of this group, but nobody can tell who the member of the ring was who generated the signature. So that's the functionality that a ring signature provides, so it's a certain degree of anonymity. Now with a linkable ring signature, we have an additional feature. We can make sure that if somebody attempts to sign twice, so the same member of the ring tries to sign two different things, 
then there is an algorithm that we can use to efficiently link this to the same user and identify it. Um, and this is one of the key components in the Monero CT transaction system. Okay, so here is the first attempt of um, preserving the amounts in such a uh, privacy-preserving transaction. So the sender wants to show that the amounts hidden in these uh, two black commitments here, the ones that aren't decoy commitments, sums up to whatever is in the commitment that corresponds to the output. Okay, so what's the idea here? The idea here is that we're going to use Pedersen commitment to do this, which has a homomorphic property. And what that means is that given the two commitments to the inputs, one can efficiently check whether whatever is being committed to sums up to um, the commitment that should be the sum of their inputs without actually knowing what is inside these commitments. Um, so here is the verification equation, and, and that's the reason why this actually works. Now, the problem that remains here is, is actually a privacy problem, because if we give this homomorphic functionality for the commitments, then it is actually possible to use that to identify which of these uh, inputs are decoy inputs corresponding to uh, basically zero coins, and which are real inputs corresponding to non-zero coins. Because if I have a decoy input, then I can just try to add it to another trend, uh, one of these commitments homomorphically, and then you can see that the amount will be preserved, and, and then it's not private anymore, and it doesn't hide the amounts in these inputs. And that, of course, is exactly the reason why we want to have these commitments in the first place. So how do we get rid of that? Well, there is a famous quote attributed to David Wheeler, which says that all problems in computer science can be solved by another level of indirection. So I'm not sure if this is universally true, but in you know the specific case of Monero, it is actually true. So what we're going to do is, is add exactly such a layer of indirection, and, and this will correspond to something called pseudo-outputs. So rather than outputting directly, we will have a layer of pseudo-outputs, and um, so the, the commitments in the pseudo-outputs should now have the property that they uh, homomorphically can sum up to the commitment in the output. But to make sure that these cannot be linked to uh, the amounts in the original transactions and cannot be used to distinguish which are decoys and which are not, we will use a ring signature to spend from the inputs to these commitments. So the, the intuitive idea behind this is, is that the set of all of these commitments is basically uh, the set of users who want to sign. And that sounds a little bit weird because now each of these commitments also sort of can be thought of, of ha as having a public key, namely the public key that corresponds to this transaction here or to this input. And what we want to do is we want to show that there was one of these uh, input commitments plus public keys who signed uh, the corresponding amount that transferred to this commitment. But we don't want to show which of them it was because that would reveal which ones are the decoy inputs and which are not. Um, so that's the very, very high level idea, basically to treat these uh, inputs as users in a ring signature, very abstractly spoken. And um, 
once we once we are able to do that, so to get from inputs to pseudo outputs, then we've broken this link that can be used to uh, distinguish um, decoy inputs from real inputs, because we basically add this layer of anonymity using the ring signature. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans. And if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, gratuitous, and Monero. So that only leaves one thing, which is how are ver uh, transactions verified in this system? Well, basically, we're going to check for the following things. First, we're going to check whether all inputs are previous unspent outputs. Then we're going to check for whether all signatures, meaning ring signatures here, are valid. And we're also going to check that no signature links because uh, if a signature links, then basically that means that somebody tried to spend the same output twice uh, in, in two different transactions. And that, of course, would be an attempt of double spending. And, and that's something we want to prevent. And, and lastly, we're going to check whether um, the amount of the transaction is preserved. So the amount that's being input is preserved in the output by checking this homomorphic equality here. So. That was a very brief overview of how Ring CT works. It's uh, rather complicated, and I hope now you um, can appreciate why it's so difficult to prove the scheme secure. But now let's actually turn to our security model. So for the security model, because uh, many of you might not have a background in, in uh, provable security, let's actually first explain what exactly uh, the security model should capture and how it works and how to think about it. So in provable security, the way that we think about um, security, and I think I already mentioned this at the beginning of my talk, is we think of security as being formalized as a game between a challenger who proposes a scheme, in this case, the ring CT scheme, and an adversary that tries to break the security of that scheme. So the adversary basically tries to win the game by breaking whatever security property we uh, we formalize here. Okay, um, and and the goal of you know of our work, of course, is to formalize such a security game which accurately captures whatever is going on in the real world and map it to a mathematical model. And that's the intuition here. So now. That means that we have to abstract what the adversary can meaningfully do in the real world into our model. So the adversary could, in our model, create new honest users. So it can basically tell somebody to take up Monero, start mining some coins, and uh, and behave like an honest user in the system. Maybe through the phishing mail, for example. Then um, the next thing that it can do is it can submit transactions to the system uh, or it can spend some transactions to other users, participate in mixed transactions, and so on and so forth. It can 
make honest users submit transactions by, for example, conning them into spending something. So thirdly, it can corrupt users, meaning that now it controls that user and all of their funds. And it can do so um, in, in our model at any point in time. And finally, just to add some money to the system initially, we will also allow the adversary uh, to create source coins, which basically just means that the system will be populated with some currency. Okay, so now let's formalize the winning conditions of the adversary in this security game between our implicit challenger and whatever adversary tries to break the security game. So the first winning condition is that the adversary can steal coins from honest users meaning that it can spend the coins of honest users without, of course, knowing their spending keys. The second condition is that the adversary can create coins out of thin air, which, of course, would also undermine the security of the honest users because then money is worth nothing. Now, for the remainder of my talk, I'm going to be focusing on this second winning condition here. Uh, so the adversary should not be able to create coins out of thin air. And uh, let's have a look at how we formalize this. So we'll start with having, you know, some invariant called, or, or, or some variable rather called received, and it's just going to be some natural number. And whenever the adversary um, gets some coins, either from a source or from an honest user, then the amount received will be increased by that much. Second, we have a variable called spent, and whenever the adversary spends any coins to uh, an honest user, then the uh, amount of spend will be increased by that much. So um, the winning condition now can be phrased as spent being greater than received, because that means that the adversary spent some money which it did not receive, and that would amount to it creating points out of thin air. And in this case, the adversary would win. Okay, so this is the security model and uh, the adversary's goal. And now let's actually have a very, very brief look at how we would attempt to prove such a thing. Okay, so if we have a look at these transactions, again, remember that we, uh, we have these three layers, inputs, pseudo-outputs, and outputs. And um, now our idea is that, you know, skipping some details here, that we want to we want to map all of these transactions which happen over the lifetime of the entire system to a graph. And once we have this graph, we're actually going to be able to apply graph theoretic arguments that show that the adversary is not capable of um, spending more coins than it receives. And this is going to come down to a graph theoretic argument. And the key difficulty of the proof really is to show that each behavior of the adversary that it can perform in this abstraction of the system can actually be mapped to a unique graph that we can later analyze. So this is actually where the um, the cryptographic security of all of the components of the system comes in, comes in because if those components were not secure then we couldn't map 
each set of such transactions to a graph in the way that I'm going to show you next. So uh, I'm not going to show you how exactly you translate such a transaction um, set to the graph, but but this is intuitively where the cryptographic security of these components would come in. Okay, so let's go directly to step three, how to translate this into a directed graph. So the directed graph is going to look as follows. We're going to have two types of nodes, actually four types. So there's going to be a source, which is going to supply an initial amount of coins to the system. And then we have light gray nodes, and they correspond to unspent uh, outputs. And now each of these light gray nodes, you see, can be connected to um, one of these darker nodes. And the dark nodes are going to be transactions which spend those unspent outputs. And they're going to spend them into new uh, unspent outputs. And then, of course, at the, at the very end, when the system ends or dies, we're going to have a target node. And, and anything that wasn't spent at that time uh, just goes into this target directly. So this is our graph. And now we, you see we have these labeled edges here. Um, and these labels actually correspond to the amount of this unspent output that is being transferred into the transaction corresponding to these dark gray nodes. So each of these um, uh, arrows here can be labeled with such an amount. And um, that is how we build this graph. So now here is a brief interlude. I told you that we want to apply some graph theoretic argument to this graph that we built. And um, just to give you a rough idea of how this will work, um, what we're going to use here is the theory of flow networks. So that sounds a little, uh, you know, maybe abstract, but but it's actually quite simple. So a flow network, what it means is basically you have a graph and, and this graph uh, corresponds to a network of flows passing to it through a system. So each of these arrows will correspond to some flow going from one node to another node. And the property that is crucially exploited in a flow network is that for every node in the flow network, whatever goes in has to go out, okay? So for example, you can see that um, the node just above the source, uh, it gets as an input two flows, one, one, and what comes out is two. And if we have such a flow network, then we can consider something called an ST cut which is defined as follows. So basically we can partition all of these nodes in the graph into two disjoint subsets, S and T, where S contains the source and T contains T, but otherwise uh, there is no restriction on them. And now there is a very simple lemma that says that any cut in this network will have the same value. So what is a cut? Basically a cut is just a partition, as I said, of these nodes into two dis uh, distinct sets. Uh, which where one of them contains the source and the other the target. And now we just see how much flow goes over this cut. So as an example, I could uh, have a cut where the target is just one node uh, in T and, and everything else is in S. Then we can see that the value of the cut is three because what comes out of the left partition is and then goes into the target is exactly three. But if I uh, look at 
a cut where these blue nodes are in S and the black nodes are in T, then what is going out of S will be four, but what goes back into S from T is one. So the overall flow that goes out of S into T is still three. Uh, and, and for this example, it's the same thing. Okay, so any cut yields the same, uh, the same value. Okay, so we use this now in our, in our security argument after defining this graph. So first we have to argue that it is a flow network that also comes into our security analysis. But once we do that, then we can actually define a very simple ST cut as follows. Well, basically we're just going to let, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the left half of this cut be the honest uh, unspent transaction outputs corresponding to non-corrupted nodes that don't belong to the adversary. And the rest of these nodes are going to belong to the adversary. So those are the ones that it controls. And now we're asking how much flows from the honest parties, uh, you know, unspent outputs over to the adversary. And we analyze this value. And then through a series of, um, of uh, inequalities, which, which uh, I'm not going to explain here in detail because I think I'm running out of time a little bit, uh, we are able to show that the amount of received coins is greater or equal to the amount of spent coins. So the intuition, of course, behind this is that, you know, basically the, the flow should always be preserved. So it should not be possible to, to spend more coins than you receive because this would amount to, to violating the condition of a flow network in one of these nodes. And this is basically what this series of inequalities shows here. So it's just a nice way of abstracting this problem and being able to mathematically analyze it. Okay, so let me summarize what I talked about today. So what did we see? What did we find out? So we had Monero and Ring CT, and we had a new security model that we saw, and we proved the uh, security of Monero and Ring CT in a, in, a, in a formal sense using the theory of flow networks. So that concludes my talk, um, but I'm happy to, to take in any questions, um, and uh, thank you for listening. All right. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. If anything, if anything comes through in the chat, I will, I will read it out loud, but so far I do not see anything pertains exactly to this. Maybe I'll give it a couple minutes just in case, you know, sure. someone's writing something long. <laughs> Here's all. You said that security was proven, but anonymity not. What are the plans for proving the latter? Wait, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. Can you, so, so what is, what is not proven? Uh, could, could you repeat the question? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. I, um, I think this person may have been speaking to someone else in chat. I'm not sure. Uh, no, no, that was you. Uh, sorry. You said that security was proven, but anonymity net. What are the plans for proving the latter? Oh, 
Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. So that's a good question. So the, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Now, now the, the issue is with that, first of all, it requires very different set of arguments, um, because the, the anonymity guarantees. So we, we actually know that, that some of the anonymity guarantees are, are uh, difficult to prove in Monero because there are these, um, these graph based attacks on anonymity and it's, it's very difficult to formally capture them. And, um, we were thinking about this, but then we were actually speaking to some Monero developers and they told us that there is a plan to migrate to a, uh, to a new transaction system, uh, in the near future called, uh, I think Serasis. And, um, it's, it's unclear to us whether it would, would make sense to analyze the anonymity properties of, of Monero as currently is, um, you know, when there is a new transaction system on the horizon, which might be easier to analyze or, or guarantee better anonymity. Um, so at this point, we're not sure if, if we should, you know, wait for another year or go for whatever is currently online. And, and I guess we, we would appreciate feedback from the community actually on that. Oh man, it happened again. Someone uh, tried to send a message longer than 280 characters and uh, uh, StreamYard just ate it up. Um, but it looks like they got it through. In a technical sense, do you think some cryptocurrency protocols or private communication protocols are too close to the bleeding edge, putting users at risk due to missing security proofs or insufficiently reviewed security proofs? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so, so it's, it's an interesting question because I think there's so much innovation coming out of this space. Uh, it's, it's really amazing, right? There, there are so many smart people in this space. Um, but a lot of them, of course, you know, and, and there's so many nice ideas, but of course, inevitably a lot of these ideas, um, they're maybe not hundred percent thought through sometimes. They're like minor details, very difficult to see. And you really need a kind of a formal training and have worked a couple of years in the space to be able to, to detect them. Right. So it's so often, you know, like these, these cryptanalytic techniques, they can be very, very subtle to apply. And, um, and there's obviously a lot of literature on this stuff. So it's not always easy to see where the vulnerabilities lie. Um, but, but I think it's. Yeah, so I think I think it's a double-edged sword, right? On on the one hand, we have all of these amazing new applications coming out, and it's it's been great. You know, um, I think the the space has seen so much progress over the past uh, one and a half decades, and um, but but I think with that, there is always a risk of there being something deployed that is um, that is not fully secure yet, and um, I'm I'm actually not sure what to do about that. I think I think we're we're slowly moving toward a scenario where where people are becoming more aware of this and trying to to give formal security proofs before deployment. Um, but I think we're not completely there yet. All right. Um, it doesn't look like we have anything else. And Seth, uh, our last speaker, is ready to go. So, thanks so much, Julian. Thank you. Okay. See ya. Bye-bye.